This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. Rebecca, we are talking the day after the Golden Globes, and both of our interviewees were part of the Golden Globes, as I guess basically everyone as part of award season is at this point. They're just, it's incredible how many outfits they have to go through in a short period of time. Um, but let's start first with my conversation with the Golden Globe winner, Paul Giamatti, who won the award for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy for his role of The Holdovers. And Rebecca, I think we both know that was a really tight race. I think we all kind of didn't know if it was going to go to him or Jeffrey Wright. Um, but he got up and gave this fantastic speech. And I think, as you'll hear, is a pretty fantastic interview. Um, Rebecca, I'm assuming you were as thrilled as I was to see him win. I really was. I think we've been talking on the podcast about how we feel like he may go um, underappreciated because he just does deliver incredible performances every time. And and I think a lot of us want him to finally get the the acknowledgement for that, what he's been doing for years. And The Holdovers is definitely some of his best work. So it was so nice to see him take that stage. And and I've talked to him on some panels and he he's a really uh, lovely interview. I'm sure you also had that experience. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I like thought he was his character in The Holdovers, but I think having seen that movie a couple times and really loved it, I kind of was associating him with being like, you know, a grand actor and stern. And then I had found out right before I talked to him that he has his own podcast called Chinwag, in which he talks about like UFOs and Bigfoot and all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> and he's such, it, like that podcast is a delight. And I kind of realized I was going to be going into a conversation with that Paul Giamatti, who's just kind of curious and thoughtful and really funny. Like we got off on a tangent talking about Jungle Cruise, which really delighted me. Um, so, he, yeah, he was a blast to talk to. And, you know, I think in terms of talking about his talent, you look at his performance in The Holdovers, which is really an entirely different person. And then hear him and you kind of realize the extent of his talent. So hopefully uh, everyone enjoys that as much as I did. Let's hear my conversation with the star of The Holdovers, Golden Globe winner, Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. 
Paul Giamatti, thank you for coming to talk to me. As we were just saying, you're on kind of a whirlwind tour as we're speaking. You were in Palm Springs uh, accepting an Icon Award that I think you uh, took some issue with the nature of the name of the award. It I seemed like it was funny. a lot. I said somebody, yeah, somebody said to me, hey, man, you're iconic. I was like, I- ironic is what I feel like. <laughs> I was like, iconic? I don't know. I, I mean, it was very nice. I'm not sure. going to say no, but I'm a little bit like I- icon. That's a that's a big <laughs> word. You know? Well, and then your your co-star, Dave Vinejoy Randolph, he presented her breakthrough prize or something like that. And I think you both yes. were like, well, she's been working for a while. And I wondered if that specifically was something you experienced, like back in the um, in the sideways days where you're like, I've been here. Like, why did it now all of a sudden you're taking notice? You guys relate on that level? I got some <laughs> sort of a breakthrough award many years ago for something. And I was like, fantastic. I'm, you know, 37 or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's. Yes, it's funny and it's and it's ironic, but you know, it's a nice thing, you know, because there's some truth to it, I suppose. People are people are finally really taking note of her in a way that they hadn't been. Yeah. I mean, I saw her at the New York Film Critics Circle, I think the day before that, where she's, you know, like looking incredible yeah. and like taking the stage in a way that kind of is suggests like I've been this talented and now you all can notice. And it's an inter- like you guys can obviously be really grateful for the recognition, but there's also the element of like, well, where were you 10 years ago when I did? But I think, you know, somebody like her, me too, to some extent, it's like you just you're not you're doing it just to do it. Yeah. You know, it's like it's 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 just nice to work. Yeah. And then if somebody wants to give you a, a prize or an award, that's nice, too. Yeah. Well, you work so often and you do such a wide range of things. And I wonder for you, I think I heard you say to Mark Marin that public speaking is not your favorite thing. So when you make something like The Holdovers and you know people like me are going to come around and ask <laughs> you questions and put you on a stage, how do you prepare for that? Well, it's easier to do this with you because sure. I'm. I, this is easier. It's like if I have to get up and give a – I mean – I. I mean, I had a whole shtick last night when I did this thing about how I was writing a speech because they were really like, <laughs> you've got to write a speech. And I was like, oh, shit. Because that, that makes me very, very nervous. Like yeah. public speaking like that makes me very nervous. Having an interlocutor or whatever you call this, you know. Sure. Just a conversation. Yeah. Yes. That makes it much easier for me. So when the holdovers premieres during the strike, where you're like, "Whew, thank goodness!" Like they let Alexander Payne go out there for me. <laughs> yeah, there was a part of that. Yeah, I was a little bit like, "Okay," and it was really nice, actually. Though it was wonderful to see him and the editor Kevin Tent and Hemmingson, the writer, mm-hmm. and Wendy Chuck, the costume designer, that they were out front doing it. I yeah. thought it was actually kind of great. Yeah, I was like, "This is good." Forget the actors. Who cares? Enough, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I got to talk to him and Igle, the cinematographer, a couple months ago about like the way that they put the shots of the movie together, which was in their dynamic is completely fascinating. And, you know, p- people don't get to do that. No, you don't get to talk to the so Danish cinematographer very much. <laughs> He's a super interesting guy and going to yeah. have a lot of really interesting stuff to say. He had a lot to say about shooting in snow and like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know what you're the, if you're just kind of coming in and watching them having done all the hard work. But they thought a lot about the snow in this movie and how to make it work. The snow is a whole, whole thing in that. And it's real snow. Oh, yeah. So, it, you know, that was a huge relief for everybody that it was yeah. real snow. And we don't get as right. much of it as we did in 1970. So you kind of have to, like, take what you can get when you can get, when you can get it. I hope it's not. Yeah. 
One of the things from that conversation that I wanted to ask you about is um, Alexander Payne really singled out this one shot of Dominic that's in the movie um, where you guys are sitting at the restaurant kind of toward the end and he talks about what really happened with his father. And he said he ripped the shot off from The Godfather, from the very first shot of The Godfather, where it starts in really tight and then moves mm-hmm. out while he's just giving this monologue. And he mm-hmm. was telling me about it from the perspective of Dominic, this you know, this kid who's never really acted in a movie before and putting his faith in him to do it. But you're on the other side in that scene. And I wonder what that's like for you to watch your scene partner carry that and to give him what he needs. And, you know, knowing that he's really new to this and maybe what he needs in that moment, particularly. Well, it's always, you know, I mean, I knew that he was going to shoot that. And what he really wanted to do was leave the camera on him for as long as possible in that Mm -hmm. scene. Actually, he had told me that, which is great. Um, that's always a thing. If you're going to sit there with with another actor, you want to be there for them, and you want to, especially if you really don't have much to say, you just want to be sure you're there. Some actors don't want to look at you while you're doing something like that. Hmm. They don't want to see you. They want to do it because it's. But but you know yeah you got to be there for somebody like that. He was that was incredible though because he did that. I think maybe he did that in two takes. Wow. He was with the first time he did it. I turned to Alexander and I was like, holy fuck. He just like <laughs> nailed the shit out of that. Sorry. But he did. I was like, wow. He just nailed that. And it was like impressive. Yeah. Because I've worked with some fantastic celebrated veteran actors who wouldn't be able to do that. That's not easy what he did. Really not easy. What, what what trips people up in things in moments like that? Do you I mean, is it forgetting lines? Is it that simple? Or do they get in their own head? I think it's forgetting lines, it's getting in your head, it's not not being ready or whatever, you know, or taking needing time to find the thing or something, you know. I mean, all yeah. kinds of things can can trip you up with that. I mean, the basic thing of not knowing your lines, it's surprising how much that's the thing that trips a lot of people up to have to say that much. Just I think film actors get very used to not doing that mm-hmm. and, and to talking that much. And yeah. it's like and it can get challenging. But Dom did stage stuff. In high school and stuff. So to him, it was like, oh, yeah, I know my shit. And he really did. He was, it was amazingly impressive what he did. Yeah. I mean, do you, like, what's the job for you that's different when you're working with him kind of new to film acting? Or is it not that different? I know you don't want to consider yourself a mentor, but clearly there's some dynamic there that's different from, you know, a veteran. I suppose, I don't know. I think maybe... I expected it to be more different than it was, and it wasn't. It, he was much more sort of in the groove and in the game and much more sort of polished and professional than I think I maybe thought he was going to be. Mm. I mean, I certainly found myself intently watching him in this in a slightly different way and wanting to clock things because I, I did feel like the thing I could help him out with the most was just to remind him how good he was when he mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. And he always was, but sometimes he was really nailing it. And I didn't want to get him in his head about it. I would just say, that. how did that feel? Was that? And he would go, yeah. And I would say, mm-hmm. that's cool. Just, you know, that eventually really became my only function. Then it was just being able to hang out with the guy. His freshness, his newness, his inexperience was exciting to me. Mm-hmm. It was actually like expansive to me. I didn't feel like I needed to babysit somebody. I felt like it was feeding me too. And it was really, it was lovely. Yeah. I, I don't think you were as young as, as Dominic when you were first started acting on film, but you were pretty young. Like you had uh, acting credits 
when you're at least early 20s. I wonder if there was any, um, yeah, you know, I any... was probably like 22, 23 when I started. Did you uh-huh. see any similarities there from how it was when you started, or is it totally different? Oh, the stuff I was doing, nobody <laughs> gave me shit. <laughs> I was doing stuff where it was just like I was thrown in the deep, and nobody, I didn't know anything, nobody cared, nobody yep. was going to help me. You know, I mean, he picked stuff up. Yes, I suppose I did do things like that for him. You're right. I forgot, like, this is an eye line and this is your mark and stuff like that. That's easy, though. But that's easy. Nobody was telling me any of that shit. I had no idea what the hell was going on. I just got thrown (laughs) in the deep end and I had to figure it out. And it was it was many years of figuring stuff out because no. Nobody cared. I came in to play, you know, some goofy little part. I mean, you know, people are just like, just come on, pal. Just say it. (laughs) Just get out of here. Yeah. So it was really (laughs) like, but that was a good way of learning, too. Yeah. Like I was was looking at your IMDb and I think in 1997, you were in like six movies that came out in one year. And obviously filming is different, but like that's a lot of learning, right? Like even if you're in there for one day, like you're teaching yourself even if nobody else is. Yeah, I probably did some things at this simultaneously. I'm sure I did two or three things at once. I did that a lot. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but, you know, (laughs) I figured, okay, if I can manage to do it, I'll do it. Is it the kind of thing where you're like, you know, make hay while the sun shines, like take the job while take the jobs while they're still there? Was that yeah, the attitude? For sure. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. I was like, oh, absolutely. It was completely that was entirely the attitude. Yeah. But also I just I like to work and I was getting to do all different kinds of things. And so I was like, okay. I didn't at that point, nineteen ninety seven, have a kid or anything like that. Yeah, so it was I just could, fun. So, yeah. So I yeah. could just yeah, I could do all these things. Do you remember when you stopped just saying yes to everything? So in, in like a fear that it would go away? Probably about a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm not kind of kidding. I think it's in the past couple of years. I mean, I think when I started doing a television show, yeah. I didn't, I, I was like, okay, I know I have this job now. When I would, they would tell me that the next season was, was on deck and I thought, okay, I can sort of chill out a little bit. Yeah. So I think it was probably around. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, about what that kind of, you know, people, you know, they get on a TV show and they're thrilled because it's a steady job and you know where you're going to go. And, like, did it give you the ability to experiment more, to, like, you know, go after something you wouldn't have otherwise? Like, what was that freedom like? Yeah, I suppose it did. Um, Yeah, I did a play. I hadn't Mm -hmm. done a play in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think I looked forward to actually not doing a whole lot. I, I think I did learn that I didn't have to keep. I could stop for a minute mm-hmm. was the novel thing of that. Um, you know, I got some good jobs. It was tricky to do because it wasn't a ton of time off. And yeah, they didn't let and it you showed do. us a lot of you, yeah. And they did, and they didn't let you do a lot of stuff. They they had to they had to vet whatever it is you wanted to do. So sometimes they would say, No, you couldn't do something, especially TV stuff. But I, I do actually think the lesson for me probably was more about just just not doing a whole lot was mm-hmm. actually being able to stop a little bit and not kill myself going from job to job to job. Do you think that would have happened as you got older? I feel like I'm I'm about to turn 40 so a slightly different phase, but I feel like I talk to people I know a lot about being like you get to this point where you're like what is why are you killing yourself to do all this? So I wonder if for that sure. if that comes with age anyway. It has for me. I mean, yeah. you know, I still like to work. I still want to work, but I definitely feel like I can I can slow down. It definitely. Yeah. yeah it's age. And it's not 
I mean, I still have a lot of, I still have the same level of energy and stuff. It's just a kind of like, I don't know. I can, I don't have to knock myself out all the yeah. time. I'm okay, you know. I've had a little bit of that thing if I'm never going to work again. <laughs> I had a little bit of that thing. A lot of actors have. Lots of actors have. Like, mm -hmm. I can't, I got to take this job because I may never work again. Yeah. You know? So I've always had a little bit. Did that attitude change some in that sideways Cinderella Man period? I mean, that was a big shift in your career. Like, obviously, it doesn't change everything. But did your attitude adjust a little bit after that? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I certainly felt a bit more secure in something. Mm -hmm. um, I, the most interesting shift was I didn't have to audition anymore, mm -hmm. which was has, has always been a very interesting thing. Auditioning... I don't know. It's a whole subject. And so I felt a certain amount of, well, this means something. And it means some sense of security. I had some sense that, okay, I think I can probably, I'll manage to find work. All the time. <laughs> um, was it a relief to lose auditioning? Like, was it redreading it before? No, I actually liked auditioning. Mm. I actually kind of perversely enjoyed it. And it was like, I, I, I mean, it was fent listen, it's great <laughs> to not have to do it. It's like, it's an amazing thing to get yeah. to this place where people are just offering you money. It's uh, jobs and money. <laughs> and, um, and that's an amazing thing. But I liked it. I liked auditioning. Sometimes I not miss it exactly, but it feels like a, a useful part of the process that mm -hmm. sort of vanished for me and now people have to do all this stuff they film it themselves so uh -huh. I don't know that I would like that yeah because you go in the room and you don't have the contact with people and you don't get direction back and stuff like that so it seems very weird to me now yeah what what, what folks have to do is strange so I don't think I'd miss this <laughs> what they have to do now yeah you, you know? got out in time to to, to yeah. dodge that bullet in some ways <laughs> You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. To talk about the, the work that you are still doing, because you do still work a lot, when you go onto a set to do a pretty small role, because you were saying to, to Mark Marin that the variety of the smaller roles you get has increased in recent years, which is interesting to me. It do you did feel after, like it's after the period of time you just talked about, yeah. the, the supporting stuff got really varied and interesting to me. Which is cool. And, yeah, totally. Because I that I like that. I like doing those parts, and it's like so that was cool. Mm -hmm. And I remember I got this role in a movie called The Illusionist, which I don't think I would have gotten if I hadn't done Sideways and yeah. those things. 
because I don't think it's something somebody would have thought of me for normally. But I think now people had a bit more of an expanded view or something of me. So yeah. they were like, okay, I think maybe you can play this German police detective. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I know I can, but it's amazing <laughs> you think I can. So so that was that was different. But yeah, that, that changed. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like when you were, you know, in that process of still stepping on sets for, you know, you know, whatever smaller period of time that you were learning still maybe in the way you were in 97 making six movies a year? Like, is is part of the appeal of doing all of that? Like, oh, what can I figure out by being on Jungle Cruise for, you know, however sure. long that is? Absolutely. And it's always, I mean, you know, it sounds like a kind of, I don't know, goofy thing to say maybe, but I'm, it's constantly a learning thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know less and less and less. Uh, you know, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> and so it's a different kind of unlearning now or something. But it's hmm. like, you know, always a process of like something. So, yeah, I heard a Jungle, I mean, Jungle Cruise, it was ridiculous. The, there was no real part. And they were like, do you want to play this part? I was like, sure, what the hell is it? And they were like, he's the harbor master. I was like, his name, is he Italian? They were like, he can be. I was like, okay. I was like, can I have like gold teeth and a parrot? And like, they were like, sure. I was like, okay. I was like, can I say stuff in Neapolitan? Sure. I was like, all right, okay, this sounds great. I mean, they kind of just let me do whatever the hell I wanted to do. I'm so, so glad was the like, parrot was your idea. I'm so fond no, of that. Yeah, I don't need a monkey. They wouldn't let me have a monkey. <laughs> That's probably more expensive somehow. Well, it was more hard, more difficult to work with. So, yeah. you know, it's easier to work with. No, that movie, you and Jesse Plemons both just seem to be like, what can I add to this that wouldn't be there otherwise? And it's really great <laughs> to him. watch. He was great. He was really great. Really He's great. Hilarious. I don't remember if that came out the same year as Power of the Dog or the year after, but he works all the time. And it was like, look at this range. And you you do similar things. Where it's two things in the same year where it's like, okay, it's all there. Uh, he's, he's really great. <laughs> yeah. He's I think he's so great. Do you see this movie? Is it called Game Night? Is it called? Oh my Game god! Night? Oh yeah, with the with the cop. Oh, great movie! Great movie. He is hilarious. He's really funny. <laughs> he nails a really particular weird, the yeah. weird guy down the street. You're a little creeped out by. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. The his line, "How can that possibly be profitable for Frito Lay?" Like comes up all the time with like half the people that yes. I know. Yes. I'm so glad you've seen yeah. that. Um, I'm dying to ask about you about your podcast, which I didn't know about until I listened to you on Mark Marin. So I'm really I'm new to it. I'm catching up. Um, yeah. But I, I it like because hosting a podcast myself i'd like having this thing that i am making and that is mine in some way and i'm wondering if as an actor where you are going from job to job and even if you're working with alexander payne it's still his movie if that is appealing part of why you wanted to do it that it's this thing that you're making and belongs to you hugely hugely yeah. and and increasingly so as we kept doing it mm -hmm. i mean at first i was amazed anybody was going to do this because <laughs> it's weird you know, and I'm with this, it's called Chinwag. Mm -hmm. and, it's, oh, yeah. and I do it with a friend of mine, Stephen Asma, who is a philosophy professor out in Chicago. He teaches art students philosophy, and he's a great guy. So, I mean, and the idea was that the whole thing was going to be animated, but we couldn't do that. But they do animate little bits of it and stuff with this fantastic anime, Sokol. And it was weird. I mean, we're talking about UFOs, and but I mean, we're talking about all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But it's just any weird thing that interests us. So I couldn't believe anybody was letting us do it in the first place. But yes, very much so. It feels yeah. very much like our thing. Mm -hmm. And it's this wonderful little world. And I love going and seeing Steve. And we just do this weird thing yeah. for a couple hours. And it's fantastic. 
It's mine. It's, it's <laughs> nobody. These people are wonderful that are doing it, you know, because they just let us do whatever. They've really been wonderful. And it's, yeah. it's ours. And that very much so. It's never in your hands as an actor. It's always being taken out of your hands. Yeah. Fortunately, generally by really great people. And sure. that's fine. Yeah. You know. But, but yeah. also, like, listening to what I have, you get people like Tom Hanks and Mike Birbiglia coming on to be like, yeah, I'm going to talk about something that has nothing to do with anything. And they seem to love yeah. it, like having that chance well, to go that, off. That I hoped would be appealing to people mm-hmm. like that. I mean, we also talk to, like, historians and people like that. But I thought maybe this will be interesting for Catherine Hahn to come out and uh, not talk, talk about cults mm-hmm. and not talk about And then it just goes wherever the hell it goes. Yeah. yeah. But, but to not be promoting something and not be talking about the stuff you always have to talk to. Yeah. And people consistently said they really enjoyed it. And, mm-hmm. and that's nice. Yeah. And then, like, you, the fandom that you get from podcasting, I think, is really specific. Like, you, you know, you guys have been doing live shows. You're interacting with people who know you and your work. But a podcast is different. People feel close to you. I wonder what that's been like for you, having been known for a long time. But this is different. Yeah, it's fascinating. And you're right. And there's a real sense of, like, bonding with mm-hmm. these people, that's really kind of wonderful. Yeah. And I think in the case of this, what's been interesting is I don't think people expected me to be interested in this stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's actually been sort of fun too, <laughs> is that people I think were surprised. And so it it's it's for them, I think, kind of fun. Like it is this different thing they're connecting with me about that, that yeah. feels, feels special or something because it's not what they expect to talk to me about. We get a lot of interesting people with this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Very wonderful people, but it's an extremely interesting fan base. Super smart and interesting people. I feel like you hear about actors a lot. You can be on set forever and you need to do something and they read a book and all of a sudden an actor is learning about all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with it. Is that what gets you on this road down just like learning about odd things that you would not encounter otherwise? Well, I mean, yes, sure. But I also think I, I it's a thing I've been interested in since I was a kid. I mean, all of this stuff, it's its a very childhood thing for me. But I've carried it into adulthood. And mm-hmm. there's, there's lots of interesting things about it. But yes, it's something that definitely acting has afforded me the time and space to sit around <laughs> and indulge in even more. Because, yeah, you get a lot of time to kill. Yeah. Or whatever. You know, you do something. I do a movie that allows me to, like, indulge in that kind of thing. Oh, that's true. Like you play a part that lets you do research that you wouldn't get to do otherwise. Yeah. When I did that M. Night Shyamalan movie, um, Lady in the Water, I took it as an excuse to just sit around and read about, I don't know why. About film critics? About a mermaid, so I'm going to read about Bigfoot and stuff like that. (laughs) I took it as a real excuse to do that. Oh, did that that put you on this path? Or is it just before that? Of doing the podcast, but so big Bigfoot starts then, but other stuff might have been. Oh no, that was well before. No, okay. I mean I just podcasts. I didn't know from podcasts. I mean, sure. I'm a complete ignoramus about everything going on <laughs> in the culture. So it's like I didn't really, you know, and and, and for some reason I thought, oh, podcast—that's not for me. I can't do that, you know. And so it just no. I I don't know what the hell. Oh, I know why. I know why I started doing. It. Mm. <laughs> I saw Stephen, my friend asthma do a talk on a uh, one during covid mm-hmm. in 2020 he gave a talk about the imagination and consciousness and stuff like that which i thought was really interesting so i contacted him afterwards and we killed a lot of time just bullshitting on on zoom you know became friends and we're talking about all this crazy stuff and he was one day started recording it and then he gave oh, it to wow. this 
animator he knew who drew said he said look at this funny thing i did for 10 minutes of the of our conversation and we were like oh maybe somebody will do this and yeah behold, did did you have anyone you work with like an agent or manager who was like why in the world are you doing this my agents were a little like, uh-huh. They were, <laughs> they were a little like, right. But my manager, God bless her, was like, oh, this is great. You got to yeah. do it. Yeah, my manager, 100%. Does that, I mean, I, I don't, you don't want to make bold proclamations about the future, but does it, does it represent any shift in how you think about, like, what work you do want to do? What different work you can do? Like, what, yes. you know, what, what doors yeah. are going to open? Yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, I'm a big fan of all kinds of stuff genre stuff yeah and it's like you know i don't do a lot of it i mean mm -hmm. i got to do this crazy spanish horror tv show called 30 coins which is on hbo um cool max or whatever what are they called max, max. i think it's max now it? yeah max. yeah and uh yeah i got to do that and that was really it's a crazy crazy show and um it's terrific and yeah stuff like that would be fun i'd like to do more stuff like that there's one action movie you did. Was Shoot 'Em Up? Is that the that's like that, that? I feel like that wasn't so long ago. Like it feels like that's a that's a path that comes back and forth once in a while. Well, I did a lot of action movies, kind of funny little supporting parts in a lot of action movies early on. Yeah, in my career, I ended up with one of those. I love it. It was fantastic. I love it movies and that was a really bizarre action movie. Shoot 'Em Up. And yeah, that one was that was a unique one. <laughs> Yeah, it was a really, yeah, kind of ahead of its time a little bit in mm -hmm. some of the stuff it was doing. It was really great. Yeah. Is it fun to be on the set of an action movie when you're paying the, like, you know, you're not in the middle of the gun shootout? Like, is it interesting even if you're not in the midst of the actual action? Yes, it is. Okay. I mean, it's nice to be in the in the gunfight, you know, but it's interesting to watch it. Sometimes being in the gunfight can get kind of boring, actually. Mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's funny, like, how laborious those things can be sometimes. But, yeah, you want to be in the middle of the gunfight as much as you can. One of the coolest things I did ever did a long time ago, I was in a John Woo movie called um, Paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I do remember getting to be in the middle of a whole thing with everything explode. We were in a mall and everything's getting shot up and we're having to run across the mall. And he had something like nine cameras set up. So it was one continuous take of the thing. Yeah. It was all coordinated. So you got to run as shit was blowing up and hide behind here and then run over there. So it was a continuous thing. It wasn't chop, chop, chop. That was great. Yeah. That was one of the coolest things I've ever done. It was fantastic. That sounds really fun. Um, as you're out here with the holdovers talking to people, not just up on stage, but actual conversations, like what are what do people want to talk to you about? About either this movie or, you know, your career in general. Is there a theme to what everyone wants to ask you about right now? Um, I think people have been interested in talking to me about sort of my relationship with Alexander. Mm -hmm. I think that's been the thing that's mostly been interesting to people is this yeah. sort of talk years and and these two movies and you know and that sort of thing has been interesting to people which has then become this kind of a lot of people have been talking to me like you are about like mm -hmm. you played these weird characters people are very interested suddenly in the stretch of time of yeah so yeah because i've been doing it a long time so that's you seems not do you not usually think about the stretch of time like when, when you you don't you know, it's not that you don't think about sideways, but just like thinking about everything you've done as a cohesive package. Is that what people like me come to you and be like, well, this thing links to that thing? Do you know yes. what I mean? And I don't really, yes, totally. And I haven't really thought about it much that way. And I don't think much about now I have been. It's been interesting to <laughs> sort of realize and think about. Yeah, no, I, I've been having to do a lot of these conversations and stuff about sort of going back and reviewing stuff. And 
I don't even remember a lot of things people are asking me about mm -hmm. and people are. And so that's been sort of interesting kind of memory and time and my own past and stuff yeah. like that. It's been very interesting. And it's interesting because the movie, the holdovers is so much about memory and time in the past. Rebecca, now let's hear your conversation with John Baptiste, who was a presenter at the Golden Globes. He was not actually eligible for an award, but is really the face as well as the subject of the documentary American Symphony, which I think even way back since Telluride, everyone who sees this movie has just fallen deeply in love with it. Um, and I assume that you're one of them. Yeah, I think the first time I saw it, I was just struck with how vulnerable he and his wife Suleika had to be for this mm -hmm. you know they it was filmed um, almost over an entire year of their lives as he was nominated for 11 Grammys and he was writing this original symphony but at the same time his wife is going through uh, cancer treatment and it's just this really vulnerable look at these two artists and I I understand artists are often vulnerable but for me Capturing this, this time in your life on film just seemed like such a brave choice. So I was really curious how he came around to that idea. Yeah, it was interesting watching him at the Globes, having seen the documentary where, you know, he's on stage, he's been on a show, he's so charming and such a good public figure. And But you've seen the movie, you're like, oh, no, I know the real one. <laughs> I yeah. know the real John Batiste in there. And you really feel like you know him and his wife and their relationship after seeing it, which I think is a huge part of its power. Um, he's also an Oscar winner. So, you know, as this movie makes its way through award season, you understand why people just kind of want to flock to him and see him in all these rooms and talk to him about his story. Yeah, I mean, he's got this really dynamic personality, I think, in any room. You know, people gravitate towards him. Um, and he also wrote a really beautiful ballad, uh, original song for the film that uh, was on the shortlist. So we talk a little bit as well about creating that and how that was maybe different than some of his other music. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to hear it. Let's hear your conversation with the subject of American Symphony, John Batiste. I'm so excited to welcome John Batiste to the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Yes, indeed. Hello, hello, hello. I feel really special we're talking today because I know you had a busy night at the Globes last night. You were a, a presenter. How was your evening? Oh, I had a good time. It was it was really great to just be in the room. You know, I had the great blessing and honor of winning the Globe, but it was during the year that we were in the COVID pandemic. Mm, yeah. So couldn't have that experience of being in a room with everybody and celebrating all the great work and being with friends and felt like I got a chance to do that as a presenter this year. I know a lot of people were saying they really loved you and Audra Day together. Like you guys were hilarious. So <laughs> I think well, you, you know, succeeded. <laughs> well, you know, what's cool about that is we're real friends. Mm. And um, I think you just sometimes want to see a human being up there on stage and, and, and people just want to see another person. And I just felt like we just were being friends on stage presenting an award this time. Yeah, it was great. Well, let's turn to American Symphony. I, I think it's such an incredible film and such a, the word I used after I saw it was a vulnerable experience to really dive into your life and Suleika, your wife's life together as artists and people. And and I would love to sort of hear what it was that Matthew Heineman, who directed the film, said to you that made you say, yeah, I'm ready to do this in front of the cameras for a year of my life. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that was decided 
decisively up front. It was a process that evolved through many conversations, many things that we couldn't predict. And all of those twists and turns and frank conversations led us to the point of trust, which happened midway through the process of filming. You know, mm. a lot of things changed that you can't predict. And all of the highs and lows became a part of the narrative when it was initially just a process film about creating this never been done symphony concept. So I don't know if I would have done all the things had I known what we would be living through. Right. Right. Yeah. It took a turn, you know, once COVID slowed everything down and then uh, Suleika's uh, treatments for cancer. And, and you guys really opened up your lives in a way that I thought was really brave. Um, but was there were there ever moments where you said, this can't be filmed, this, I don't want this filmed, and then you had to come around to it? Or were you sort of agreeing to everything being open once you realized what the story would be? Well, it's interesting to note that when we were in the process of making this, it didn't feel like we were making a movie. There were no partners. We didn't have Netflix on board. We mm -hmm. didn't have the Obamas on board. It was just Matt and I, and we were producing it ourselves. And even when we premiered the film at Telluride, which was in September, mm -hmm. there was still no <laughs> distribution plan. Everything had been self-funded, and it was tenuous if we were even going to be able to get a version of the film out into the world. The edit of the film was not finished when it premiered at Telluride and changes were being made up until that premiere. Mm. So if you think about it like that, imagine Matt embedding in Sulaika and I's, our lives, mm -hmm. becoming a part of our everyday existence and us not knowing what film would be made if a film would even come out of it at all, it was just us living life with the camera. And that was what I, I really feel made it so vulnerable as, as, as a film is that we didn't think about, you know, this is the story that we want to tell. We let the, the story tell us what it wanted to be. Yeah, that makes sense. How much did Matt keep you involved as he was editing, so obviously with documentary editing is where the story can take shape. And uh, did he show you early cuts or was this something where you you two wanted to wait to see a more finished version? My initial idea of making a process film, which is why I'd approached Matt, we had worked on one of his films before that. So we had a relationship, but not to the extent of doing something so personal and intimate. Yeah. But what initially was the part of the film that I wanted to stay, which did end up staying, was the symphony process and the creative process. Mm -hmm. Because what we did with the, the symphony was something that's truly never been done, and it stands on the shoulders of so many legends that made it possible for me to bring these musicians together and for us to be the ones to finally you know, push things forward in a certain way. So I didn't want that to get lost in whatever we made. But apart from that, and of course with the score and the original song for the film, you know, I didn't sit in the edit room. I didn't see a lot of early cuts because 
I thought about what we were doing and if I was the person watching it, not the subject, if I was watching it, what would make the best art? And it ultimately is in documentary, people who are living life and they're not shaping the story. They're not trying to make it be something. They're just allowing for the moments to be captured as they would be if there was no camera there. So apart from my instinct and my desire, I stayed out of the edit room. (laughs) I'm used to being in control. I'm used to kind of shaping creative things, especially when it deals with my music and obviously our lives, our marriage. Uh, Sulaika's a exceptional storyteller. And to be frank, she didn't want to be a part of the film at first once things started to turn. And Matt had to gain our trust through really hard conversations and really, you know, expressing, you won't be flattened in this narrative. He came to it with great respect. The team came to it with great sensitivity. And, you know, I was very protective of her. So much was swirling at once that, you know, I didn't want to see an edit. I didn't want to be in the edit room. I wanted to just have frank conversations and then let the team do with that what they will. You know, you know where I'm, I stand. You know how I feel. You know what our values are. We've trusted you. Yeah. And don't, don't mess, don't mess up. <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> And you mentioned the song, uh, you know, you have this original song, It Never Went Away, that's now on the short list. And I think it's such a gorgeous ballad. Tell me about the writing process for that. Was something was that something you started before the documentary was finished or, you know, as things were coming together? Well, the score of the film and the song are blended in a sense of being in the same world sonically and also coming from the same experience a lot of the things that I was doing in this time musically were creative acts of survival, Mm -hmm. (laughs) creativity as a means for survival and forward motion. And one of the things that I did when Sulaika was in the hospital was I would write these lullabies, these lullaby themes that would play on loop in her hospital room because there was so much noise and so many entrances and so many people coming in at odd hours and there are angels over there that's saving lives every day at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. But it can be a hard time finding rest and, and, and peace when there's so much at stake. Yeah. So I thought that the frequency of lullabies in the room could really create an atmosphere of rest and healing. And never went away. You know, it started 
the theme of that song actually came from a theme of a lullaby that I composed for Sulaika that was never intended to be released. Mm. One of the changes that Matt made to the film just before Telluride was the end of the film. And he said, I really feel like this is the best way to end the film. And it had never occurred to me to write a song for the film until he showed me a clip of just the ending. And I didn't like it. And mm. I told him that, but I obviously said, it's your film, you do what you want. But I'm just be honest, I don't, I don't think this really encapsulates or, or, or it really culminates everything. And he said, you know, I'll take that feedback. He's taking feedback from hundreds of people. But um, I came back to him and I said, you know what? I think what it is, is there needs to be something sonically as a counterpart to this direction in the film, which is now the end of the film, as you see it. And um, that was the process. I, I sat with Dan Wilson, who's a friend of mine, incredible songwriter, the great Dan Wilson. And I kind of fleshed out this theme for the lullaby. And, you know, he was my song therapist in the process of me telling him what had been going on and how the music in the film and the song, it has to be in the same world and it has to be honest. This is the most authentic, vulnerable, honest thing that I've ever done. And it's the most revelatory thing that I've ever done and our family has ever done. And I just can't write a song. And he's like, well, you know, after us talking for two or three hours and playing with these themes and me having this lyric, we kind of sculpted it into a song form. Mm -hmm. And then I took that song and composed a sort of bridge from the symphony itself to the song so that it feels as if there's this inevitable flow from the score, diegetic music, and then finally the song that you hear as the closing credit song. Mm -hmm. So what was it like before Telluride when you knew that the, the film was going to be premiering in front of an audience finally? How, do you, how did you sit with that? Well, I have never done the process of putting a film out into the world like this, where, you know, I'm the subject of the film. My wife is the subject of the film. Um, so it was, it was honestly a very thrilling and jarring experience <laughs> mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, sit with 2000 people. So the largest crowd, biggest attendance of Telluride history at the premiere where you're watching your life with 2,000 people who you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what that would feel like until I was in the moment, and I kind of watched the, 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 the version of the film that I hadn't seen before. I hadn't, hadn't really experienced it, so it was all this stimulus, and I was looking at the screen through my hand, mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, oh, no, I can't watch this. <laughs> I can't relive a lot of these emotions either, you know. That was my initial instinct. You know, it was very tough, but also very rewarding to see how much it moved people and how much there was such a deep interest in the music. My initial thought about the symphony itself and making this film was not to be a commercial success. <laughs> it mm -hmm. was because I thought it needed to be documented. I thought that it was something important for culture and important for the lineage of the great artists that I admire and have inspired me and the lineage that I'm a part of and also an assessment of America at this really pivotal time. So 
I thought it would be a boring process film <laughs> that, you know, hopefully some somebody would find and understand the value of the things that I cared about and that mean so much to all of us. And it's now being premiered at Telluride and we're sitting there and there's all these people courting us to share it with the world. Mm-hmm. It was very jarring, I'll, I'll tell you that. You say that version would have been a boring process film, but when you see the film and you see this moment when you're, the symphony is happening and the power goes out and you have to create something on the piano in that moment, I mean, the best screenwriter in the world could write that and say, that seems a little far-fetched, but that's what really happened. And it's this level of drama that is just so <laughs> beautifully done in the film. So even if it was just the symphony, I feel like that had a plenty of drama with it. How does it feel to watch that moment replay wow. itself? Wow. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, the this, there's another film that we're talking about rolling out, which is the symphony in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And the backstory, more of this really intricate backstory of how this symphony with all these one-of-one musicians was assembled and the concept of what we were doing to really extend the form and to challenge the form. Yeah. Um, but that power going out was symbolic of all that, which is kind of this gate-kept space with these kind of dogmatic ideas and there being a resistance mm. to a certain approach to this music and, and and understanding that excellence and quality is at the center of it all. But there's also this cultural baggage <laughs> and, and, and the power going out in this moment, it almost felt like a representative from the, the, the forces that wouldn't want this to happen hmm. manifesting in this key moment after all this buildup and this symphony really making its way to the stage and it being thwarted almost. <laughs> it right. was just, uh, uh, it felt like a spiritual attack. And I knew that when it happened, it affirmed for me the importance of what we were doing. In a weird way, it was almost welcome. I felt like it was, it was the thing that needed to happen for us to, Move past this once and for all it was the last gasp of this force of resistance that's blocking all this beauty from entering into the world. Yeah, huh? That's an interesting way to see it. Uh, I think it's just one of the most powerful moments right at the end there. Um, it must be also sort of surreal now that the now that the film is on Netflix. Lots and lots of people around the world can see it. Have you? Do you receive sort of reactions to the film or do you take in how people are reacting to it from social media and things like that? Or do you sort of stand apart from those, that part of the process? I typically try to, you know, uh, avoid any sort of, you know, you see in the film, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the, uh, the reviews and, and uh, the critics and I typically don't do that, but this point in my life, I, for many reasons, you know, I was looking for distractions and motivations and all these things. You know, I, I typically try not to look at the appraisal of my work, but this is different because there's a, 
it's it's our work, Sulaika and I, we work, we're artists, we're creatives, but this is also us really bearing our soul and and thinking about the greater why and the belief of of what made us go through with this while all this other stuff was going on. Right. Is is you, the human condition is not something that anyone is exempt of, or we're not. Everybody's gonna deal with this, and everybody's gonna have the highs and the lows, and it's not separate. It's all at once. Mm-hmm. That's life, and I felt like the response of people who have seen it, and folks who will come and say, "This situation happened to me in this way," and and when when I was doing this, you know, some of the biggest stars in the world, they'll come to me and they'll tell me during their most iconic moment, my dad was in the hospital. Or, mm, yeah. I had this this tragedy going on. No one knows, but I didn't feel like it was something that I could share. And I had to, you know, carry this royal appearance and and and, and this sort of front when, you know, I'm being pulled in, in all directions at once. And it was just so life affirming to see that sort of anti-celebrity film, that honest depiction of life and the vulnerability of the human condition that we all are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've obviously been, you know, this is an awards podcast. You've been part of the awards circus before with Soul and Grammys and all of that. But does this feel different or harder because it is a, you know, story about you to do lots of interviews and sort of be out there in this way uh, with this story? Well, that was the thing about um, being on the team of the, the, the soul music and, 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 um, and picture, you know, we created this, this marriage between the music and the story and all these things were so dear to all of us. You know, we spent so much time and we invested so much into that story beyond our roles. It was like a real, shared collaborative process and this feels the same way so in some regards i i feel grateful to be able to shepherd it into the world and we can be together especially you know when sulaika and i are able to do things together yeah there's something super intentional and special about sharing our lives in this way it doesn't feel like we're campaigning mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like we're going out to um win awards and that's nice and I, i'm i'm obviously never never not grateful in any sort of recognition of of work but this is also our lives you know it's not just it's it's not just a performance yeah and how looking forward how would you sort of describe where you are right now creatively obviously the Grammys are coming and then you'll be heading out on tour. Where would you say, what are the future goals for your creativity at this moment? I just want to continue to expand on what it is that I am capable of, which which comes from just zeroing in on the craft and, and working on how to be a better composer, lyricist, musician, performer, all the things that I've weaved into my brand of storytelling and how I can tell stories and to speak to all the things that I care about and value in in these specific ways tailored to the message. Mm -hmm. So um, even with the score of this film, I'm thinking about how so much of the music happened while filming and to then 
figure out how to reverse engineer the score to then now compose a score for this documentary that was happening in real time and how we were successfully able to do that and take themes from the symphony and actually align them with the many different themes that were braided into this one story of the documentary film. And things like that are what excites me. You know, how can I take all of these abilities, these superpowers of the craft of, of the art that I am, am doing and blend and collaborate with others who are, you know, maybe they're in filmmaking or maybe they're in fashion or maybe they're in tech. And how can we create something that tells a story that's meaningful to all of us and that's tailor-made? That's what we did with the album. You know, the album, funny enough, World Music Radio and the symphony were being composed at the same time. So I like to have two different things, you know, different axes working. And I'll continue to do that as well. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday talking much more about the Golden Globes, we promise, and where we stand in this crazy period of award season. Uh, find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at VF Awards Insider. You can find me at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.